Chapter sixty two of Middle March. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Middle March by George Eliot. Chapter sixty two. He was a squire of low degree that loved the king's daughter of Hungary. Old Romance. Will Lady's Law's mind was now wholly bent on seeing Dorothea again, and forthwith quitting Middlemarch. The morning after his agitating scene with Balstrode, he wrote a brief letter to her, saying that various causes had detained him in the neighbourhood longer than he had expected and asking her permission to call again at Lowick, at some hour, which she would mention on the earliest possible day, he being anxious to depart, but unwilling to do so, until she had granted him an interview. He left the letter at the office, ordering the messenger to carry it to Lowick Manor, and wait for an answer. Ladislaw felt the awkwardness of asking for more last words. His former farewell had been made in the hearing of Sir James Chetham, and had been announced as final even to the butler. It is certainly trying to a man's dignity to reappear when he is not expected to do so, a first farewell as pathos in it, but to come back for a second lens an opening to comedy and it was possible even that there might be bitter sneers afloat about Will's motives for lingering. Still it was on the whole more satisfactory to his feeling to take the directest means of seeing Dorothea, than to use any device which might give an air of chance to a meeting, of which he wished her to understand that if it was what he earnestly sought. When he had parted from her before, he had been in ignorance of facts which gave a new aspect to the relation between them, and made a more absolute severance than he had then believed in. He knew nothing of Dorothea's private fortune, and being little used to reflect on such matters, took it for granted that according to Mr. Casselbon's arrangement marriage to him, Will Ladislaw would mean that she consented to be penniless. That was not what he could wish for even in his secret heart, or even if she had been ready to meet such hard contrasts for his sake. And then, too, there was the fresh smart of that disclosure about his mother's family, which if known would be an added reason why Dorothea's friends should look down upon him as utterly below her. The secret hope that after some years he might come back with the sense that he had at least a personal value equal to her wealth, seemed now the dreamy continuation of a dream. This change would surely justify him in asking Dorothea to receive him once more. But Dorothea on that morning was not at home to receive Will's note. In consequence of a letter from her uncle announcing his intention to be at home in a week, 
she had driven first to Freshet to carry the news, meaning to go on to the Grange to deliver some orders with which her uncle had entrusted her, thinking, as he said, a little mental occupation for this sort good for a widow. If Will Ladislaw could have overheard some of the talk at Freshet that morning, he would have felt all his suppositions confirmed as to the readiness of certain people to sneer at his lingering in the neighbourhood. Sir James, indeed, though much relieved concerning Dorothea, had been on the watch to learn Ladislaw's movements, and had an instructed informant in Mr. Standish, who was necessarily in his confidence on this matter. That Ladislaw had stayed in Middlemarch nearly two months after he had declared that he was going immediately, was a fact to embitter Sir James's suspicions, or at least to justify his aversion to a young fellow, whom he represented to himself as slight, volatile, and likely enough to show some recklessness, as naturally went along with a position unriveted by family ties or a strict profession but he had just heard something from Standish which, while it justified these surmises about Will, offered a means of nullifying all danger with regard to Dorothea. Unwanted circumstances may make us all rather unlike ourselves. There are conditions under which the most majestic person is obliged to sneeze and our emotions are liable to be acted on in the same incongruous manner. Good Sir James was this morning so far unlike himself that he was irritably anxious to say something to Dorothea on a subject which he usually avoided as if it had been a matter of shame to them both. He could not use Celia as a medium, because he did not choose that she should know the kind of gossip he had in his mind, and before Dorothea happened to arrive he had been trying to imagine how, with his shyness and unready tongue, he could ever manage to introduce his communication. Her unexpected presence brought him to utter hopelessness in his own power of saying anything unpleasant but desperation suggested a resource. He sent the groom on an unsaddled horse across the park with a pencilled note to Mrs. Cadwalder, who already knew the gossip, and would think it no compromise of herself to repeat it as often as required. Dorothea was detained on the good pretext that Mr. Garth, whom she wanted to see, was expected at the hall within the hour, and she was still talking to Caleb on the gravel when Sir James, on the watch for the rector's wife, saw her coming and met her with the needful hints. "'Enough, I understand,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'You shall be innocent. I am such a blackamoor that I cannot smirch myself. I don't mean that it's of any consequence.' said Sir James, disliking that Mrs. Cadwallader should understand too much. Only it is desirable that Dorothea should know there are reasons 
why she should not receive him again, and I really can't say so to her. It will come lightly from you. It came very lightly, indeed. When Dorothea quitted Caleb and turned to meet them, it appeared that Mrs. Cadwallader had stepped across the park by the merest chance in the world, just to chat with Celia in a matronly way about the baby. And so Mr. Brooke was coming back. Delightful. Coming back. It was to be hoped, quite cured of parliamentary fever and pioneering. A propose of the pioneer. Somebody had prophesied that it would soon be like a dying dolphin, and turn all colours for want of knowing how to help itself, because Mr. Brooke's protégé, the brilliant young Ladislaw, was gone or going. Had Sir James heard that? The three were walking along the gravel slowly, and Sir James, turning aside to whip a shrub, said he had heard something of that sort. All false, said Mrs. Cadwallader. He is not gone, or going, apparently. The pioneer keeps its colour, and Mr. Orlando Ladislaw is making a sad dark blue scandal by warbling continually with your Mr. Lydgate's wife, who they tell me is as pretty as pretty can be. It seems nobody ever goes into the house without finding this young gentleman lying on the rug or warbling at the piano. But the people in manufacturing towns are always disreputable. You began by saying that one report was false, Mrs. Cadwallader, and I believe this is false too, said Dorothea, with indignant energy. At least I feel sure it is a misrepresentation. I will not hear any evil spoken of Mr. Ladislaw. He has already suffered too much injustice. Dorothea, when thoroughly moved, cared little what any one thought of her feelings, and even if she had been able to reflect, she would have held it petty to keep silence at injurious words about will from fear of being herself misunderstood. Her face was flushed and her lip trembled. Sir James, glancing at her, repented of his stratagem, but Mrs. Cadwallader, equal to all occasions, spread the palms of her hands outward and said, Heaven grant it, my dear. I mean that all bad tales about anybody may be false. But it is a pity that young Lydgate should have married one of these Middlemarch girls. Considering he's a son of somebody, he might have got a woman with good blood in her veins, and not too young, who would have put up with his profession. There's Clara Harfarger, for instance, whose friends don't know what to do with her, and she has a portion. Then we might have had her among us, however. It's no use being wise for other people. Where is Celia? Pray, let us go in. I am going on immediately to Tipton said Dorothea, rather haughtily. Good-bye. Sir James could say nothing as he accompanied her to the carriage. 
he was altogether discontented with the result of a contrivance which had cost him some secret humiliation beforehand. Dorothea drove along between the buried hedgerows and the shorn cornfields, not seeing or hearing anything around. The tears came and rolled down her cheeks, but she did not know it. The world, it seemed, was turning ugly and hateful, and there was no place for her trustfulness. It is not true, it is not true, was the voice within her that she listened to, but all the while a remembrance to which there had always clung a vague uneasiness would thrust itself on her attention. The remembrance of that day when she had found Will Ladislaw with Mrs. Lydgate, and had heard his voice accompanied by the piano. He said he would never do anything that I disapproved. I wish I could have told him that I disapproved of that, said poor Dorothea inwardly, feeling a strange alternation between anger with Will and the passionate defence of him. They all try to blacken him before me, but I will care for no pain, if he is not to blame. I have always believed he was good. These were her last thoughts, before she felt that the carriage was passing under the archway of the lodge-gate at the Grange, when she hurriedly pressed her handkerchief to her face, and began to think of her errands. The coachman begged leave to take out the horses for half an hour, as there was something wrong with a shoe, and Dorothea, having the sense that she was going to rest, took off her gloves and bonnet, while she was leaning against a statue in the entrance hall, and talking to the housekeeper, at last she said, I must stay here a little, Mrs. Cowell. I will go into the library and write you some memoranda from my uncle's letter, if you will open the shutters for me. The shutters are open, madam, said Mrs. Cowell, following Dorothea, who had walked along as she spoke. Mr. Ladislaw is there, looking for something. Will had come to fetch a portfolio of his own sketches, which he had missed in the act of packing his movables and did not choose to leave behind. Dorothea's heart seemed to turn over, as if it had had a blow, but she was not perceptibly checked. In truth, the sense that Will was there was for the moment all-satisfying to her, like the sight of something precious that one has lost. When she reached the door, she said to Mrs. Cowell, Go in first and tell him that I am here. Will had found his portfolio, and had laid it on the table at the far end of the room, to turn over the sketches and please himself by looking at the memorable piece of art which had a relation to nature too mysterious for Dorothea. He was smiling at it still, and shaking the sketches into order with the thought that he might find a letter from her awaiting him at Middlemarch, when Mrs. Cowell, close to his elbow, said, Mrs. Casabon is coming in, sir. Will turned round quickly, 
and the next moment Dorothea was entering. As Mrs. Cowell closed the door behind her, they met. Each was looking at the other, and consciousness was overflowed by something that suppressed utterance. It was no confusion that kept them silent, for they both felt the parting was near, and there is no shamefacedness in a sad parting. She moved automatically towards her uncle's chair against the writing-table, and Will, after drawing it out a little for her, went a few paces off and stood opposite to her. "'Pray, sit down,' said Dorothea, crossing her hands on her lap. "'I am very glad you were here.' Will thought that her face looked just as it did when she first shook hands with him in Rome, for her widow's cap, fixed in her bonnet, had gone off with it, and he could see that she had lately been shedding tears. But the mixture of anger in her agitation had vanished at the sight of him. She had been used, when they were face to face, always to feel confidence and the happy freedom which comes with mutual understanding, and how could other people's words hinder that effect on a sudden? Let the music which can take possession of our frame and fill the air with joy for us sound once more. What does it signify that we heard it found fault within its absence? I have sent a letter to Lowick Manor to-day, asking leave to see you, said Will, seating himself opposite to her. I am going away immediately, and I could not go without speaking to you again. I thought we had parted when you came to Lowick many weeks ago. You thought you were going then, said Dorothea, her voice trembling a little. Yes, but I was ignorant then of things which I know now, things which have altered my feelings about the future. When I saw you before, I was dreaming that I might come back some day. I don't think I ever shall now. We will pause here. You wish me to know the reasons, said Dorothea timidly. Yes, said Will impetuously, shaking his head backward, and looking away from her with irritation in his face. Of course I must wish it. I have been grossly insulted in your eyes and in the eyes of others. There has been a mean implication against my character. I wish you to know that under no circumstances would I have given men the chance of saying that I sought money under the pretext of seeking something else. There was no need of other safeguard against me. The safeguard of wealth was enough. Will rose from his chair with the last word and went. He hardly knew where, but it was to the projecting window nearest him which had been open as now about the same season a year ago, when he and Dorothea had stood within it and talked together. Her whole heart was going out at this moment, in sympathy with Will's indignation. She only wanted to convince him that she had never done him injustice, and he seemed to have turned away from her as if she too had been part of the unfriendly world. 
it would be very unkind of you to suppose that I ever attributed any meanness to you, she began. Then in her ardent way, wanting to plead with him, she moved from her chair and went in front of him to her old place in the window, saying, Do you suppose that I ever disbelieved in you? When Will saw her there, he gave a start and moved backward out of the window, without meeting her glance. Dorothea was hurt by this movement, following up the previous anger of his tone. She was ready to say that it was as hard on her as on him, and that she was helpless, but those strange particulars of their relation which neither of them could explicitly mention kept her always in dread of saying too much. At this moment she had no belief that Will would in any case have wanted to marry her, and she feared using words which might imply such a belief. She only said earnestly, recurring to his last word, I am sure no safeguard was ever needed against you. Will did not answer. In the stormy fluctuation of his feelings, these words of hers seemed to him cruelly neutral, and he looked pale and miserable after his angry outburst. He went to the table and fastened up his portfolio, while Dorothea looked at him from the distance. They were wasting these last moments together in wretched silence. What could he say, since what had he got obstinately uppermost in his mind was the passionate love for her which he forbade himself to utter? What could she say, since she might offer him no help, since she was forced to keep the money that ought to have been his, since to-day he seemed not to respond as he used to do to her thorough trust and liking, but Will at last turned away from his portfolio and approached the window again. I must go, he said, with that peculiar look of the eyes which sometimes accompanies bitter feeling, as if they had been tired and burned and gazing too close at a light. What shall you do in life? said Dorothea timidly. Have you intentions remained just the same as when we said good-bye before? Yes, said Will, in a tone that seemed to wave the subject as uninteresting. I shall work away at the first thing that offers. I suppose one gets a habit of doing without happiness or hope. Oh, what sad words, said Dorothea, with a dangerous tendency to sob. Then trying to smile, she added, We used to agree that we were alike in speaking too strongly. I have not spoken too strongly now, said Will, leaning back against the angle of the wall. There are certain things which a man can only go through once in his life, and he must know some time or other that the best is over with him. This experience has happened to me while I am very young, that is all. What I care more for than I can ever care for anything else is absolutely forbidden to me. 
I don't mean merely by being out of my reach, but forbidden me, even if it were within my reach, by my own pride and honour, by everything I respect myself for. Of course I shall go on living as a man might do who had seen heaven in a trance. Will paused, imagining that it would be impossible for Dorothea to misunderstand this. Indeed, he felt that it was contradicting himself and offending against his self-approval in speaking to her so plainly. But still it could not be fairly called wooing a woman to tell her that he would never woo her. It must be admitted to be a ghostly kind of wooing, but Dorothea's mind was rapidly going over the past with quite another vision than this. The thought that she herself might be what Will most cared for did throb through her an instant, but then came doubt, the memory of the little they had lived through together, turned pale and shrank before the memory which suggested how much fuller might have been the intercourse between Will and someone else with whom he had constant companionship. Everything he had said might refer to that other relation, and whatever had passed between him and herself was thoroughly explained by what she had always regarded as their simple friendship and the cruel obstruction thrust upon it by her husband's injurious act. Dorothea stood silent, with her eyes cast down dreamily, while images crowded upon her which left the sickening certainty that Will was referring to Mrs. Lydgate. But why sickening? He wanted her to know that here, too, his conduct should be above suspicion. Will was not surprised at her silence. His mind also was tumultuously busy while he watched her and he was feeling rather wildly that something must happen to hinder their parting, some miracle, clearly nothing at their own deliberate speech. Yet, after all, had she any love for him? He could not pretend to himself that he would rather believe her to be without that pain. He could not deny that a secret longing for the assurance that she loved him was at the root of all his words. Neither of them knew how long they stood in that way. Dorothea was raising her eyes, and was about to speak, when the door opened and her footman came to say, "'The horses are ready, madam, whenever you like to start.' "'Presently,' said Dorothea. Then turning to Will, she said, "'I have some memoranda to write for the housekeeper.' "'I must go,' said Will." when the door had closed again, advancing towards her. The day after tomorrow I shall leave Middlemarch. You have acted in every way rightly, said Dorothea, in a low tone, feeling a pressure at her heart which made it difficult to speak. She put out her hand, and Will took it for an instant without speaking for her words had seemed to him cruelly cold and unlike herself. Their eyes met, but there was discontent in his, and in hers there was only sadness. He turned away and took the portfolio under his arm. 
I have never done you injustice. Please remember me, said Dorothea, repressing a rising sob. Why should you say that, said Will, with irritation, as if I were not in danger of forgetting everything else? He had really a movement of anger against her at that moment, and it impelled him to go away without pause. It was all one flash to Dorothea, his last words, his distant bow to her as he reached the door, the sense that he was no longer there. She sunk into the chair, and for a few moments sat like a statue, while images and emotions were hurrying upon her. Joy came first, in spite of the threatening train behind it, joy in the impression that it was really herself whom Will loved and was renouncing, that there was really no other love less permissible, more blameworthy, which honour was hurrying him away from. They were parted all the same, but Dorothea drew a deep breath and felt her strength return. She could think of him unrestrainedly. At that moment the parting was easy to bear. The first sense of loving and being loved excluded sorrow. It was as if some hard icy pressure had melted, and her consciousness had room to expand. Her past was come back to her with larger interpretation. The joy was not the less, perhaps it was the more complete just then, because of the irrevocable parting, for there was no reproach, no contemptuous wonder, to imagine in any eye or from any lips. He had acted so as to defy reproach, and make wonder respectful. Any one watching her might have seen that there was a fortifying thought within her, just as when inventive power is working with glad ease some small claim on the attention is fully met, as if it were only a cranny open to the sunlight. It was easy now for Dorothea to write her memoranda. She spoke her last words to the housekeeper in cheerful tones, and when she seated herself in the carriage, her eyes were bright and her cheeks blooming under the dismal bonnet. She threw back the heavy weepers and looked before her, wondering which road Will had taken. It was in her nature to be proud that he was blameless, and through all her feelings there ran this vein. I was right to defend him. The coachman was used to drive his greys at a good pace. Mr. Casabon, being unenjoying and impatient in every way from his desk, and wanting to get to the end of all journeys, and Dorothea was now bowled along quickly. Driving was pleasant, for rain in the night had laid the dust, and the blue sky looked far off away from the region of the great clouds that sailed in masses. The earth looked like a happy place under the vast heavens, and Dorothea was wishing that she might overtake Will and see him once more. After a turn of the road, there he was with the portfolio under his arm, but the next moment she was passing him while he raised his hat, 
and she felt a pang at being seated there in a sort of exultation, leaving him behind. She could not look back at him. It was as if a crowd of indifferent objects had thrust them asunder, and forced them along different paths, taking them farther and farther away from each other, and making it useless to look back. She could no more make any sign that would seem to say, Need we part, than she could stop the carriage to wait for him. Nay, what a word of reasons crowded upon her against any movement of her thought towards a future that might reverse the decision of this day. I only wish I had known before, I wish he knew, then we could be quite happy in thinking of each other, though we are forever parted. And if I could but have given him the money, and made things easier for him, were the longings that came back the most persistently. And yet so heavily did the world weigh on her in spite of her independent energy, that with this idea of will as in need of such help, and at a disadvantage with the world, there came always the vision of that unfittingness of any closer relation between them, which lay in the opinion of every one connected with her. She felt to the full all the imperativeness of the motives which urged Will's conduct. How could he dream of her defying the barrier that her husband had placed between them? How could she ever say to herself that she would defy it? Will's certainty, as the carriage grew smaller in the distance, had much more bitterness in it. Very slight matters were enough to gall him in his sensitive mood, and the sight of Dorothea driving past him, while he felt himself plodding along, as a poor devil, seeking a position in a world which in his present temper offered him little that he coveted, made his conduct seem a mere matter of necessity, and took away the sustainment of resolve. After all, he had no assurance that she loved him. Could any man pretend that he was simply glad in such a case to have the suffering all on his own side? That evening Will spent with the Lydgates. The next evening he was gone. End of Chapter 62